much more difficult to explain the monetary mechanisms that are in place. And I think that if people really understood it, you know, there probably would be pitchforks and riots in the street. Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. If you like what we're doing here, just a reminder, rate and review if you're on podcast. And then if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification button. These things really help us get this out to more people. Don't forget to tell your friends, and that way we can keep doing what we're doing here every week. So we're about to speak with Steve Soretsky. He's a realtor in Vancouver, Canada. He also is incredibly knowledgeable and passionate about macroeconomics. And why that's a cool pairing is because we're able to dive into the micro of the Vancouver real estate market, but also the Canadian housing market, and yet also speak speak about how are these things impacted by monetary and fiscal policy in the US, in Canada, how are currencies working, and what's the potential future we have to look forward to, not just in housing, but currency and inflation, deflation. It's a great conversation. I sure learned a ton. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Steve, welcome. Really great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. For sure. So for folks that maybe are unfamiliar, you've got a YouTube channel where you speak about all your work with uh, real estate in Vancouver, in Canada, and then also a bunch of macroeconomics. And I'm very excited to dive into some stuff with you because it's not usual we get to speak with someone who has such a good really in-depth understanding of a, of a big component of the markets, real estate, but also a good macroeconomic framework. And so maybe just for, for myself and for others, how did you, how'd you pair those two? Were you interested in real estate first and then macroeconomics or how did these things become, you know, a one for you? Yeah, no, it's a good question because everybody goes, oh, like, you know, you're selling real estate in Vancouver. Like, you know, oh, what does that have to do with macroeconomics? Like, how come you're so, you know, yeah. fascinated or always talking about central bank policy and stuff like that? Um, sort of for myself, it was kind of like in 2015 where, you know, like the Vancouver housing market's taking off. Everybody's trying to justify what's happening in, in the markets. And so, yeah, I just kind of went down this rabbit hole. So, so like, I'm a huge proponent of, of, you know, self-education, always learning, always questioning, always trying to get better. And, and, and for me, it was just like, listen, like if you want to understand a real estate market, I think you have to understand capital flows and you have to understand how the world works because like mm-hmm. what we saw here in Vancouver, like we are a global city. And so we're impacted particularly by global events. Uh, and so like one of those global events was obviously uh, you know, what was going on in China with the capital flight in 2015, 2016, that pushed our housing market up uh, tremendously. And uh, yeah, I think like, you know, I think if he sort of turned back the clock, sort of the warning signs were there. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it kind of took me down this path. And I think now we're starting to see anyone that's been following along with financial markets, you can clearly see that, you know, all these markets are moving now together, like particularly if you look at what's happened in this pandemic, right? Like global property markets are all moving almost Mm -hmm. in tandem. And um, yeah, so I think it's basically, yeah, I think you have to really understand the macro to sort of help you understand the micro, so to speak. Yeah, completely agree. And so you've got just under 20,000 subscribers on your channel. What, in your view, what are they there for? What what answers are they looking for? 
uh yeah i mean it started sort of on the micro maybe more just like hey listen i was doing deep dive analysis on the canadian housing market right i mean like if you're here in canada um there's really not a whole lot of information about housing markets that isn't completely biased obviously the big banks push out their messages because you know Mm -hmm. it's in their best interest the real estate brokerages all that stuff so for me i just try to look at it and say hey here's what i'm seeing like you know, whether it's bullish or bearish, uh, you know, this is what I'm seeing and you're free to make that sort of call. And then it sort of morphed into trying to help explain people and sort of provide like financial education uh, around helping people understand markets and why they're moving. Right. And so, I mean, one of the fascinating ones here, uh, again, it's sort of during the pandemic was everybody, including our own government agency, was saying, hey, listen, markets are going to puke. Uh, real estate prices are, are probably going to fall somewhat significantly and we actually saw the complete opposite and so you know a lot of that was just explaining mm-hmm. the policies and saying hey listen look look what central banks are doing uh, we've come in with massive uh, fiscal stimulus basically handing essentially helicopter money to households and then you know the central banks essentially funding um that government spending um through basically these qe programs so trying to explain that so i think people basically come I guess, first and foremost for the Canadian housing picture, but then also um, sort of, I guess, the financial aspect of it, uh, education as well. Yeah. Well, prepping for this actually was like, okay, when did Steve start? It kind of was like, what are these first videos look like? How have they changed? And uh, I actually stumbled around, you had a great mustache in the beginning there. Yeah, yeah, that was, I think I I think I might, must have started filming in, uh, in Movember there. Um, that, that was, I that was, was like, this guy started this thing just to show off the mustache, or <laughs> yeah, I know that thing was going strong at the time, but uh, yeah, I know it's really morphed into uh, getting a little bit more away from like I think the mm-hmm. channel really started obviously just on like Vancouver real estate because that was what I really really knew, and then obviously as your interests expand and as your knowledge base expands, yeah. sort of wanted to just provide uh, you know share some of that back share a lot of the resources that, uh, you know, I learned from and, and help people in any way that I can't because, uh, yeah, I think everybody's working pretty hard in this life. And if I can help people understand the system and so they can maybe protect some of that hard earned capital, um, that that's kind of my ultimate end goal with the channel. Well, let, let's go there a bit. Cause you, you say this thing's transitioning and we can, we can see that with the work you've done, uh, more macro framework. So perhaps, Walk me and the listeners through what is at the most fundamental level, what is going on with the U.S. and Canada? What's that macro framework which you um, like try to see this picture? Uh, I look at it ultimately as what's happening, particularly over the last, really since the, the, the global financial crisis, mm-hmm. is central banks are basically... Uh, the, the, the financial system, as you know, it is kind of on life support, right? So you've got the situation where I think Ray Dalio explains it best, right? You've got monetary policy one, which is central banks, lower interest rates. Um, and that's sort of the mechanism that's used to, you know, as you hit a recession, you lower interest rates um, to spur economic growth, to, to spur uh, borrowing. And then you go into monetary policy two, which is kind of what we've seen since 2008. It's when, you know, you basically cut interest rates to zero. You can't really cut them much further. So then you start doing quantitative easing, which is, a, again, basically the central banks purchasing up 
massive amounts of, uh, of government debt in, in hopes to lower uh, yields and, and push people further out on the risk curve and inflate asset prices. Uh, so that's monetary policy two. And then Ray Dalio you know, talks about monetary policy three, which is what I think we're in right now, which is that you know, monetary policy one and two are kind of reaching their limits. You know, how much mm. QE can you really do to actually stimulate? And what you're seeing now is that monetary policy three is essentially where the, 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 the government comes in and does basically uh, their own version of essentially monetary policy, where they basically just essentially drop helicopter money, uh, start cutting checks to people, forgiving various little bits of debt here and there. And that essentially is all funded um, by the central bank. So they, became, they basically become one and the same entity. And so I think that's kind of where we're at right now. So what you're seeing really is um, we're in an era where central banks are, and the governments are saying, oh, there's no inflation, there's no inflation. We're, we can't hit 2%. We're trying to hit our 2% target. We can't hit it. But meanwhile, you're seeing massive inflation in asset prices. And so that's kind of your uh, typical signs of, of a currency devaluation. And so I don't really, I look at it more of like, listen, like I think the governments are basically trying to, they are essentially devaluing the currency. And that's why we're seeing massive run-ups um, in, in uh, you know, house prices, particularly where I am uh, and in all financial markets, right? I mean, you look at the stock market. Um, and, and so I think that's really where it's showing up. So that's kind of my framework. And I think if we look at this pandemic in particular, uh, where we implemented monetary policy three, I mean, I think that Canada's money supply, I think expanded by about 18%, uh, you know, year over year, which is the fastest pace, I think in 30 or 40 right. years. Yeah. And then you've got the U S I think they're around 22, 23%, um, you know, money supply growth. Always got to be a little bigger, the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, I look at that and think, well, if you if you're expanding sort of your monetary base by say twenty percent, mm-hmm. um, that has to show up somewhere. There has to be sort of a consequence or a reaction. And I think, like, hey, if you look at it, I mean, housing market here is up twenty percent. So um, I think that they're fairly correlated. There's there is it's a, it's a convenient coincidence. Yeah, or unfortunate coincidence, however you want to look yeah. at it. Yeah. So Tiff Macklin, um, pardon me, but I forget his official name, chairman of the... Tiff Macklin, the, uh, uh, head of the, the Bank of Canada. Head of the Bank of Canada. And then Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed. Um, these guys, as much as we want to rag on them, they're not... like. They are intelligent. They they must see what's going on, and and they they dodge and they duke when asked questions, and they have this political speak, and they can, you know, dodge any kind of question about that and say whatever they want to say. But they must see what's going on, and so we all wonder: well, what ultimately is keeping them from trying to fix the situation instead of just kicking the can on the road? And in your view, what is that? Is it just some innate human thing of? I don't want to be that guy that it all falls apart on. Is it as simple as that or? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think it's like, you've got this big system, right? Which is larger than any one individual. It's larger Mm -hmm. than any one country. You know, it's a global financial system and everybody's trying to keep it basically on life support, trying to sort of keep the existing system and, and, keep it going because like what does a reset look like nobody really knows but like clearly we know that 
we're kind of on this unsustainable path. Um, but like, what's the alternative, right? Like no one's just going to say, okay, let's just blow it off. Like, I don't want to like, I think they look at it and say, well, I don't want to be the one, like we're going to try to yeah. keep this thing happens. If there's some crisis that, you know, that comes along and we, we can't fix it, then, you know, you, I think crises are, are ultimately what trigger change. And until that mm. like sort of next crisis happens where you can't really repair that system, um, then you'll probably see, I think some sort of overhaul. And I think we're slowly, you can see, like, we're almost kind of slowly getting there. Like, you know, there's all this talk now about central bank digital currencies and, and, you know, what that's going to look like. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think even, uh, you know, Mark Carney, who was the former head of the Bank of England, basically said, listen, like this, this system, this petrodollar system, as the U.S. reserve, you know, U.S. dollars are the uh, world's reserve currency. Like, this mm -hmm. is not a sustainable path. So, like, it's out there in the open. Like, central banks have talked about and acknowledged it. But, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's, you know, willingly going to force change. I think it's going to come uh, through some sort of external event that will require change. Yeah. And are you more concerned about that external event being let's just oversimplify it and then you can tell me that's not possible and we can break it down further. But are, are you more concerned about markets breaking or society breaking? Uh, man, that's a tough one. I, I, <laughs> I don't know which one kind of goes first. I think like you're seeing society. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we really feel it here, at least in Canada where like housing is the number one issue. Um, people feel left behind. Uh, I think that the number one thing is you're kind of taught when you're, you know, growing up that, okay, you know, if you go to school, you get an education, you work hard, mm -hmm. you know, you can have a house, raise a family and you'll be you know, decently well off. You'll be okay. And I think what we're seeing now is like, you know, particularly here in Canada, like that dream of home ownership for a huge chunk of the young cohort millennials coming up is just not realistic. And, you know, they've been sort of sold this bill of goods. Um, and it feels like the social contract is basically broken. And so I think that is becoming a pressing issue. And obviously I think there's a reason why, you know, the, the younger millennial generation tends to lean left politically, uh, is looking for more government handouts, is looking for more sort of social justice, is looking for more taxes on the rich. Uh, is that, and there's a reason for that. And I think that's because, mm -hmm. you know, they just, they've been kind of left behind that social contract has, has been voided. Uh, and so I think that's, that's something that worries me. Like if you keep on this existing track of higher and higher asset prices, um, it, it's going to come to a breaking point. Um, so it's hard to say whether or not, you know, markets will break on their own or will society break prior to that. I, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. So tied. So Canadians are well regarded as quite polite, hospitable, and generous and apologetic bunch. What would it take for Canadians to go to the streets and be protesting for something different? Is if the entire cohort of millennials in mass, of course, not all of them, are honestly struggling, and let's just say that 
They're not, they're not owning homes. They're going to be renting and they're having to swallow that pill. Would that cause them to go to the streets? Or are they going to, you know, toughen up and they'll just be renters for the rest of their lives? Like what would cause Canadians to go to the streets and ask for some kind of change? Yeah, I think that's, I don't know. We're, we're, we're a polite bunch, right? So yeah, I think we'll kind of be the last to, to really have the pitchforks out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think we're seeing it um, politically. Um, I think Canada is going further and further left. I think like if we look just at housing, right, which is the number one sort of hot button topic, um, the amount of policy changes over the last five years has been like unbelievable. Like if you had gone back 10 years ago, you're like, oh, and and I told you this was going to happen. These changes were going to come in. You would have said I was crazy. So like some of those changes are, you know, in Vancouver and Toronto, you've now got a foreign buyer's tax, uh, right? Because the finger has been pointed at not monetary mm-hmm. policy because the average person doesn't understand what a central bank is or who they are or what they do. They just it's look at it and say, say, hey, like, hey, those folks came and bought all my houses. Yeah. Hey, those people, they look like they're from, you know, China. They came in, they bought our houses. Uh, this is not fair. We need to put a tax on them. Uh, and so that was implemented in 2016. They then increased it again in 2018. Then they brought in what's called the speculation tax, which is essentially if you're not renting out the home and it's not your primary residence, we're also going to, to apply an annual tax on top of that. Then we brought in like empty homes taxes here in the city of Vancouver as well. And like a lot of these policies are also in Toronto. And now the federal government's coming out and saying, you know, this year that nationally they're bringing in basically a sort of a, a foreign buyer's tax where, again, if you're a foreigner and you're not utilizing the real estate, you know, you know, renting out the house or actually living in it, you know, at least six mm-hmm. months of the year, they're going to, you know, tax you on an annual basis. And I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be effective, but you can see that policymakers are reacting to society and these policies that I think would have been unimaginable 10 years ago are completely accepted and actually supported. And I think that we're probably not done. Are policymakers reacting to the narrative that Chinese buyers are coming in inflating house prices? Or are they reacting to hard data that shows that's actually what's happening? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that... Um, to be honest, the data, so the data that they're using, uh, I don't really think captures like the true extent, um, just the way that they, 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 they use the data, the way that uh, it's structured. I mean, it's kind of a longer conversation, but it, it, it's not really an accurate reflection of, of what's happening in the market. So the government data, for example, say that foreign investment into the housing market is really just a tiny, tiny fraction. It really isn't, shouldn't be moving the market. Um, hmm. And so if you look at it from a data perspective, it doesn't actually really necessarily support like a foreign buyer's tax. But I think people realistic and I'm working here on on, on the ground, like it is a significant factor. But a lot of the problem is, is that they're looking at, you know, the government will look at it strictly and say, okay, foreign buyers purchasing, you know, let's say Vancouver real estate. Uh, Well, they're just looking at what does your passport say? Oh, well, the reality is, there's a lot of people that come here uh, they already have their permanent residency status or they've got some sort of family member that's already here that is a citizen. And so they'll, hmm. you know, they'll purchase real estate through them. 
Uh, so like, it's not like they're coming here. Like that, that money is ultimately earned offshore, right? So you're earning mm-hmm. it in a different jurisdiction. You're coming here and then purchasing real estate almost essentially as a hedge, right? Like you want to get your, if you want to get your money out of a communist country in China, what, what better place to put it into a great democracy, uh, you know, safe, stable country like Canada. Um, and so, you know, you With basically you have, don't go to the streets. So yeah, you've you've got you've got locals here that are basically earning low wages, I would say, and they're competing uh, with a global uh, investor base. You you are competing. It is a global property market. You're competing with people that are earning incomes globally. That are obviously you know you're going to earn a lot more in Hong Kong than you are in in Vancouver. So, um, and and locals are obviously struggling to to keep up with that. So. It's very interesting. I'm just thinking of the global arbitrage of labor, of how we've outsourced so much manufacturing to Asian countries because labor is cheap. And then now they're almost arbitraging this light regulation environment, low housing prices, this stable democracy. It's it's like a very interesting swap when when you start deregulating the entire globe through this globalization mechanisms we've had in place for a few decades now. And that's, that's, I, I almost wonder kind of more in line with that question about narrative. Do you, do you think the Canadian policymakers are not really that opposed to this narrative as well, because it deflects some of the attention that their policies are enacting super low rates, monetizing a lot of the government debt, of course is going to inflate housing. But do you think they're happy to have the attention on these foreign home buyers? Um, or is that getting a little too I, conspiratorial? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I think it's just like an easy, it's kind of like an easy scapegoat, right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, it's a problem. But yeah, again, like it does not, like there's there's zero discussion or talk about um, what the central banks are doing, right? Like, like zero, the fact, zero. There's like basically a zero dialogue. And I think the problem is like, if you really unpack it, like, let's be honest, like, okay, you've got, you know, major media outlets that comment on it. Like these reporters that are talking about it. Do these reporters really understand the financial system? Do they really understand what a central bank does? Like quantitative easing? Like, what is that? Um, I, I don't think like the average person understands it. And, and, and if you take a poll of your family and friends and say, Hey, do you know what QE is? Like, um, there's going to be no idea. I think a lot of people just don't really understand. So what you see in the narrative, right. They say, Oh, um, you know, housing is expected to, um, continue to be hot or we're expecting price growth in the housing market because of quote unquote low rates. They just say low rates. They never say, well, why do we have low rates? It's just that, Oh, you know, people just justify it. Well, yeah, you know, like housing's up 25% this year because of low interest rates. Nothing we can do about it. It's like, well, hold on a minute. There is something we can do about it because the interest rates are actually being artificially manipulated Mm -hmm. um, by our own policymakers. So this is a policy decision that we're making to set these interest rates, essentially. People say it's a free market. It's not a free market if you have, you know, your central bank owning... 40% 40% of the, the government's bond market, uh, which is what we have today in Canada. So, 
Um, it's not a, it's, it has, it's not a free market. Uh, I think since 2019, uh, the Bank of Canada, for example, has funded 90% of new government debt issuance. So, wow. you know, it, it's, it's, it's a total manipulation of interest rates. So, it, but again, it's easier just to deflect and talk about if you're writing an article now in CBC News uh, that's going out to millions of readers. It's much easier just to say, hey, low rates and uh, people coming in, oh, from overseas into the market. That's easy to explain to the average reader. Um, it's much more difficult to explain the monetary mechanisms that are in place. And I think that if people really understood it, you know, there probably would be pitchforks and riots in the street. But um, I think, I think for, it's almost for good reason that it's designed to be complicated. Hmm. Yeah, I often wonder that too, because oftentimes it's quite simple mechanisms, but the wording is so complex. You're like, well, what what the heck does that mean? You look it up, you're like, oh, could have just said it a different way. <laughs> yeah, like you can't, you know, it's vernacular. It's easier just to call it quantitative easing than like money printing, right? Like, I mean, yeah. yes, I know they're not necessarily like, okay, technically doing, you know, QE is not technically money printing. I understand you know, people will try to get into those arguments, but like, it's basically like a version of like money printing. Right. But like, it's so, yeah. Could you imagine if we say hey, the bank of Canada is printing this much money? Like, so they just say, you know, we're doing QE. Don't ask what that is. Um, people are kind of lazy. They don't want to look into it. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting yeah. for sure. Printing money, giving it to the government. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, it is disingenuous to say it, and that's the problem. It's disingenuous to say it that simply because it's not exactly what's going on. But if you follow a dollar, the 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 most of the dollars, as you say, end up with the government because they're buying well, the bonds. Right, and we can look at this like even a little bit further because I think we talked to the, at the beginning of your show, like monetary policy one, monetary policy two, monetary mm-hmm. policy three. Um, you know, let's look at monetary policy three, for example, like. And I'm guessing we're going to four, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, four is uh, four is uh, not yet written. Um, They're working on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Four is when they own everything. Um, <laughs> but like monetary policy three uh, is again where the basically the federal government essentially does a version of helicopter money. It's all funded by you know the central banks. Like in Canada here, could you imagine? Like, okay, this is one crisis we had a crisis at the onset of the pandemic where financial markets were completely panicked prices were selling off there was no liquidity um what did they do they came out and said well canadians for example don't you don't have to pay your mortgage don't pay your mortgage for the next six months just raise your hand you don't have to pay it um and that program turned out to be extremely successful um in at least in terms of you know arresting price declines and and Mm-hmm. increasing uh, household savings rates and all that stuff. And so to, to think in the next crisis that, you know, that policy won't be back, um, I think is, is nonsensical. It will be back. And, and oh, yeah. uh, we can talk about, you know, for example, um, you know, the government here in Canada created a program called CERB, which was basically that if you were, if you got laid off during the pandemic or if you saw a, a sort of a reduction in your usual working hours or your usual salary, you could basically apply uh, 
very, very easily for $2,000 per month paycheck. Every month, $2,000 comes right, right into your bank account. Um, and there was a huge take up of this program. And, um, you know, now the government, this, it's still going on now. It's been over a year now. Hmm. So this program is still going. Um, $2,000 per month. And the government ironically came out and said, well, hey, there was a lot of people that took advantage of the system that were maybe double dipping. They didn't actually lose any income, but they still took the $2,000. They actually came out and said, don't worry, you don't have to pay it back. Uh, and those that actually did say, hey, you know what? Oops, you know, we, we over dipped my bad. Here's the $2,000 or here's the $6,000 I collected during those three months. The people that actually sent it back the government is actually saying, no, no, actually, you know what? It's okay. We appreciate the honesty and they're going to mail you the check back so you can keep that money. So like that is the, that is That's like so Canadian. Yeah. It's a definition of like helicopter money, right? Like, yeah. It, and, and again, that's all funded. Like, well, where's this money coming from? Well, like it's basically just digits on the screen, the central bank, you know, the government is going to run massive deficits and the central bank is going to uh, come in and help with debt issuance and keep, keep interest rates low. Yeah, and I think that's a great point of these things will be back because you look at the dot-com bust and especially, in the, I'm less familiar with the Canadian response to these, but in the U.S., lower the interest rates and then you have the housing crisis, lower interest rates and print money and now it's all those and the helicopter money, as you're saying, going through these three phases and we have these other programs. So the next crisis, we're going to have all of that and probably some more things we don't even have today. Why would you expect to have less? <laughs> like, of course, we're going to have all the same, all these same policies, but even more, which is is kind of wild to wrap your mind around. But it makes sense if you think about in that arc as you just described. Um, I'd like to ask you real fast about because we're talking about Canada a lot, um, and this question again is is about Canada, but also it's about all the other um, economies that aren't like the big three central bank base, because we've got the ECB Europe, we've got the BOJ of Japan, these are the central banks, and we've got the Fed at the US, who kind of are navigating global monetary policy. And so the question is to you, why, why is Canada handcuffed and why must they follow what everyone else does? Yeah, um, yeah. They really can't. De they basically they take their orders essentially from other central banks. Because Canada's just a small country, like on the global le level in terms of like global GDP. Like Canada, just Canada basically doesn't matter. Um, so we basically inherit our, our monetary policy. Like if we start deviating and say, Hey, listen, we're going to start hiking interest rates from zero. We're going to go up to, you know, we're going to normalize rates and get them up to 3%. Well, like, I mean, you know, your, your Canadian dollar, your currency is going to, to, to strengthen uh, significantly, which is going to like destroy exports. Um, can and you so, explain that process real fast of why would the Canadian dollar strengthen in that? environment because uh, basically uh, global capital markets look for like rates of return right like sta stable economies higher rates so if I can get like a, a strong yield in, in, in Canada for example uh, like obviously you, you'd have the bond market doing the same right so maybe all of a sudden you're looking at let's say this is a very simplistic way of explaining but like mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think the Canada five-year bond is at it's let's say it's a, I think it's about one percent today but if that all of a sudden goes to 
say three or four percent versus everywhere else it's yielding you know basically zero um that's a much more attractive yeah it's a much more attractive investment uh so you'd have capital flowing in into the country which would ultimately strengthen your currency and then you know weaken your exports because you're canadian like you know what i mean so if you're an export economy um all of a sudden it becomes much more expensive for other countries to buy canadian goods right so um there's always these not yeah having responsible monetary policy you're penalized yeah essentially and then like nobody it's almost like this race to the bottom where um you know, Jim Rickards wrote a good book about it, uh, calling it currency wars. And I think that, hmm. uh, it's funny enough because I think Ray Dalio at Bridgewater said that uh, it was mandatory reading for everybody in their firm. And I think the book was written in, oh, think, in 2000. Yeah, I think it was in 2013 or 2014. So he's a little bit ahead of the game in terms of, um, hmm. calling it for sort of what it, what it is and what it was, uh, which is that everyone's trying to get a, in a world of, um, in a world of um, globalization, everybody's trying to get a competitive advantage. Uh, so everyone's trying to kind of like, basically everyone's trying to like weaken their currency um, to sort of try to get a, a one up in terms of, uh, of exporting and um, to, to remain essentially competitive on that globalization scale. So everyone's trying to like subtly devalue their currency. Um, and so it's kind of a race to the bottom, right? I mean, every central bank is basically trying to almost one-up each other. And yeah, we can just see it like every, everywhere you go. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. anyway, it's, it's a fascinating topic, but are you concerned looking forward about capital controls and like, like Steve Soretsky, are are you concerned in the next 10 years? Do you think about this? Uh, yeah, I mean, it might be a little bit out of my realm of expertise, but, uh, you know, certainly smarter people than I have, that I've, you know, read and, and, and followed and listened to. I mean, they're, they're certainly of that viewpoint that, uh, it's inevitable. I think one of the guys that I, I really like is, uh, you know, Russell Napier. He's done a lot of mm-hmm. uh, great commentary on this. Yeah, he believes that's going to be an issue. Um, all I know is that, You've got global debt GD, global debt to GDP at about three hundred and fifty percent. So it's never been higher. You've got too much debt, and you've got really low economic growth. So mm-hmm. basically, the goal is from policymakers and central banks. Basically, their entire goal is: listen, you've got global debt, global debt to GDP at three hundred fifty percent. How do we either increase GDP or uh, lower the debt ratio. And basically by doing that is, you, you know, you kind of have basically there's three outcomes is you can, number one is you can default, which I think it's pretty clear through all the policy decisions that we made over the last 12 months that that's not an option. That's not the option that they're going for. They're not looking at uh, yeah, they're not looking at that one. So they're not looking for like a Great Depression 2.0 where, hey, let's let asset <laughs> markets fall by 50% and let's just wipe, erase all these debts. Let's get mass defaults. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at that. So that's number one. Number two is you can try to grow your way out. I think that's extremely difficult to do uh, when you've got 
again, aging demographics, and you've also got a mountain of debt because debt is basically deflationary. It kind of weighs mm-hmm. down society. Um, so that's number two. So it's really hard to grow your way out. Number three is to basically inflate your way out. Um, and I think that's what we're doing right now. Now, the government will tell you that there's no inflation, that, oh, it's you know below 2%. But what you can see right now is they're trying to let inflation run hot um, so the central banks are coming out and saying, hey, listen, you know, we have a 2% inflation target, but we're willing to let it run hot, um, you know, because we need to sort of, because we've been missing our target for the last 10 years, whatever. So they are trying to basically inflate their way out. So their goal basically is, listen, we're going to buy as much government debt as we need to. Uh, that will basically, their hope is anyways, that nothing will break. So their hope is that we will keep government bond yields in this in this really tight range you know let's call it you know one one and a half percent whatever and let's try to keep gdp growth at two two and a half percent while we pin yields at one or one and a half percent so realistically so that that's that's what they're that's what the goal is and so um i think that in order to achieve that is number one, they're going to let the economy run hot. Number two, they're going to buy as much debt as they need to, to basically make sure that yields remain suppressed. And uh, yeah, number three is basically you have to have, what that means is basically it's a, it's a, it's a version of financial repression where mm-hmm. um, there is like they essentially remove that free market and it's the central banks that are basically dictating. So they come out and the central banks, this is not like a conspiracy theory, right? Central banks have come out and said, hey, listen, we're going to do yield curve control. It's in our toolbox. Um, and we're, you know, Bank of Japan's already doing yield curve control. But, uh, you know, the, the Fed and Bank of Canada, for example, officially aren't. But they can come out and say, listen, we're going to do yield curve control. We're going to tell, you know, if, if the five-year, 10-year bond, you know, eclipses 1.5%, we're going to buy. We're going to keep. We're going to target that one and a half percent. And if again, if GDP or infl- if inflation is running at let's say two and a half percent, and your yield is one and a half percent, well, it's a real loss of it's a negative one percent interest rate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the goal, and that, and that's that's my view, anyways. I mean, um, I think we could be in a scenario like that where maybe it's the next for the next decade potentially you have real negative interest rates. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a, as you said, it's simple process of elimination. They're probably not going to default the the restructuring. We're not so sure about it. Seems like it's inflation. And for folks that it, you walk through it pretty clearly, but for folks that might not understand these mechanics, could you explain a little bit deeper of why is inflation good if you have debt and it's bad if you are saving? So you have like a bank account. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, inflation's great. Uh, you know, let's say, let's say, uh, let's keep it simple here. Let's say you have a, a piece of real estate. Uh, I'll use US because US is probably the best example. But you know, let's say you bought the asset for five hundred thousand dollars, and you took out uh, you know four hundred thousand dollar mortgage on it, fixed for the next thirty years. Um, well, that debt, that four hundred thousand dollars, is fixed. And your monthly payment is whatever fifteen hundred dollars a month, but if you've got inflation uh, running at two or three percent per year, the the amount 
that, that debt is fixed, right? So to pay back that, that debt is basically diminishing every year, right? Like it's, it's becoming worth less and less and less. So you can imagine in like 20 years, like what's the value of a $400,000 mortgage? Like it's going to be nothing. Cause like generally speaking is your income should also be somewhat tracking inflation. So if your income's going up 2% per year, it becomes easier and easier to repay that fixed debt. Um, so that's kind of the, the idea behind inflation. And you look at it from governments, right? Like governments have massive, more massive, than 400,000. Yeah. Yeah. They've got <laughs> massive amounts of debt. You can only imagine, uh, a scenario where, um, every year things got cheaper and cheaper. Well, the cost of that debt, is going to become more burdensome to service because that, you know, if things get cheaper and cheaper, that probably means less and less tax revenues coming in. Uh, but meanwhile, your debt pile is the same and actually becoming, again, almost bigger because the value. So it's, it's governments, I mean, are, are the biggest debtors in the world. And so for them, it's certainly beneficial to to have some inflation. So the value of that debt becomes worth less every single year. Now, obviously, this is uh, extremely burdensome on um the average person, people in, in banks. So let, let's take uh, another simple example is um, you can lock up your money today, you know, particularly for like retirees, you lock up your money, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying not to take a whole lot of risks. So you're like, well, I'm going to just put it into, I'm going to take, you know, a hundred thousand dollars that I've got here in my savings. I'm going to put it into a, you know, a GIC, uh, you know, guaranteed investment certificate. GIC is earning, like if you're really lucky today, you might get 1%. So you might get 1% yeah. on your on your GIC savings instrument. Well, again, if inflation's running at 2% per year, it means every single year your return on that savings or that investment is negative 1%. So your savings are basically being eaten away every single year. Um, so that's extremely difficult on people with no assets. Like even if you're just an income earner, um, and you're trying to save, you know, for example, let's say you're trying to save for like a down payment on a house. Um, every single year, like your savings, not only is the, the price of the real estate is going up, let's say 5% per year, but your savings for that down payment is declining by 1% per year. So it becomes extremely difficult. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. And I think it's pretty evident to anyone watching this interview is that, you're seeing this massive wealth inequality, um, this social divide where, again, people that are sort of well off, they have assets, those assets are going up in value. And then you have a portion of society that doesn't have uh, any assets or very little assets. And they have a little bit of savings, but those little bit of savings are, are being basically um, evaporated through through. Um, through all the money printing and through the inflation. Mm-hmm. So I want to end on, you spend a lot of time working, I mean, you're, you're a realtor, so you speak with a lot of different people about their finances and their dreams and the markets and real estate. Are a lot of folks bringing these elements into the picture or are they more just like, I need to get in, things are crazy. So I guess the question is, is it, is it more of a visceral or emotive? Like, ah, like I just feel desperate. I need to do something. Or is it like, 
man, inflation's potentially coming. It would be great to take on some debt right now. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I would say like my clients typically tend to be more educated because, you know, they obviously know where I'm coming from. They're reading a lot of my work or my videos or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, a lot of them tend to be, I have a lot of clients like in the finance space, a lot of portfolio managers and stuff like that. So we tend to see eye to eye. And so for a lot of them, it'll be like a financial decision of like, Hey, listen, like we want hard assets. We think that, uh, you know, the government's basically debauching the currency and um, they're going to do everything they can to support real estate. So we're going to, I want to get in, I want to have a portion of my, net worth in into the real estate market so that's one side and then i get i get the other side of the other portion of my clients where it really is just um an emotional need if you think mm-hmm. about again general societal behaviors and and you know things that we've been taught um growing up is that you go to school you get a degree, you get a job, you start a family, you buy a house. Like that's the track. That's what most people are taught to do. And so for a lot of people, um, especially when they're starting families, they want that house. And again, and that's why we talked about in this interview is that that part of the social contract seems to be breaking because people do have this fear of missing out. They're like, my gosh, like every single year, real estate here is going up, you know, 10, 15%. And like, uh, yeah, I'm getting a 2% wage increase, but like, that's not keeping up with like the pace of these, these house prices going up. So there is a desperation and there is a fear that if they don't pull the trigger, um, you know, they might never have a backyard for their kids that they can truly call their own. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people out there that aspire to be renters, indefinitely for the rest of their lives like most people at some point want to be able to own their own home and raise their family and have that stability and that's just like a social that's just like a social thing that's built into our dna mm-hmm. um and again that's why i do worry obviously about some of these these policies and kind of where we're going um is that that hope for a lot of people is fading yeah well, you know, I really appreciate the work you do with your channel, and especially because I think that education component is a really big part of not feeling completely cast aside with the wind. It's like, okay, if I understand these forces perhaps a little better, I can more accurately assess and and have my decisions and go forward. So on that Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. Where can folks find, we've alluded to your channel a million times, so like, what, what's the title, how do, we, how do they find it, and are you on social, or where other um, places can people find your work? Yeah, uh, probably most, most active on, on Twitter and uh, YouTube, so you just at Steve Soretsky uh, on both those platforms, and uh, yeah, super active on there, so you can kind of just reach out to me, and, and uh, yeah, happy, happy, to have, happy to have a conversation with anyone. Uh, even if it's just kind of chit-chatting. Awesome. And then your your YouTube, I believe, is The Soretsky Show? Yeah, but I think if you go into YouTube and you just type in, like, Steve Soretsky, uh, it'll pop up there. So, Okay, awesome. Great. Well, thanks for joining today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. That was a lot of fun. And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people, and that way we can keep doing this every week. 
So we look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks again.